Brothers and sisters, as always, it is a joy to be able to gather with God's people on God's day and open God's word. And so I would invite you to do so by turning in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1 this morning. And because we are dealing not with the words of mere men, but of God himself, I would ask you to stand to show honor and reverence for God and for his word as we read it. Galatians chapter 1, you know that we are slowly making our way here on Sunday morning through Paul's letter to the churches at Galatia. And we left off last week in verse 10, so we find ourselves this morning in verse 11. And by God's grace, I, I'm going to read in your hearing through the remainder of the chapter, verses 11 through 24. So let's give our attention now to the word of the Lord. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remain with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother, in what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Brothers and sisters, please find your seat. <clears throat> I don't feel like that is true. I don't, I don't feel like that's such and such. And of course, this is the response that many give to many issues in our day. I don't feel like this is fair. Church, I, I, I want to say that, that we are quickly becoming a people dominated by our feelings. In fact, we are far more these days a, a feeling people than we are a thinking people. So much so that I don't know if you've noticed this now, but now our feelings uh, somehow determine the veracity of something. How else do you account for such rubbish as I have my truth? You have your truth. How else do we explain uh, biological men uh, feeling like they are actually women? And again, it's worth pointing out that such men don't think they are women, but what is the mantra? They feel like they are women. Now, you will recall that Pilate famously asked the Lord Jesus, what is truth? And I think today that, that many on college campuses, they would probably shake their head at Pilate for even asking the question in the first place. Truth? There's no such thing as truth. Truth is merely a social construct invented by straight white men to retain their hegemonic powers. 
But of course, such rhetoric only works in the classroom. And there, it probably won't work for that much longer. Uh, imagine a professor administering a test, and one of those students fails that test. Now imagine that same student charging into his professor's office and saying, you gave me an F, but I feel like I studied really hard and I feel like I deserve an A. Now, seriously, think about this with me. In a world where there is no such thing as absolute truth, how can you really get wrong answers on a test? If you can feel your way to a different gender, how can you not feel your way to a different grade? But I trust as thinking people, as those who are made in God's image, we would all recognize that truth is vitally important. And that is especially the case when it comes to Christ, and when it comes to eternity, and when it comes to the gospel. All of our so-called postmodern theories, brothers and sisters, will quickly evaporate when exposed to the brightness and the heat of Christ and His radiant glory. And, now, and I bring all of this up this morning, and not simply to step on political toes, but because Galatians as a whole is all about truth. That's especially the case here in chapter 1. Paul has labored to unfold thus far the glories of the gospel. But mind you, that only makes sense in a world where up is up and down is down. None of this makes any bit of difference at all if truth is no longer truth. And so here, toward the end of chapter 1, the Apostle Paul will continue to lean into truth. And one of those truths... Perhaps the single most important truth is the actual origin of the gospel. Think about this with me. Where does the gospel come from? Whose is it? And of course, answering those questions will bleed over into, well, who gets to define the gospel? Now here in Galatians 1, Paul is going to go out of his way to let us know that the gospel is not, I repeat, not man's invention. Paul firmly plants his feet there in verse 11, doesn't he? For I would have you to know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. Paul's saying, I didn't invent this whole thing. I didn't come up with it. No, the gospel comes from God. He says as much in verse 12, doesn't he? For I did not receive it, that is the gospel, from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So church, what is the origin of the gospel? Not human intuition, right? We don't think it up. Nor is the origin of the gospel owing to human invention. This isn't something that we get together with engineers in a lab and fabricate. The gospel comes to us by divine revelation. Christ himself revealed the gospel. Which means that the gospel is not the result of the Apostle Paul playing paper, rock, scissors and just happening to win that whole thing and therefore he gets to define the gospel. No! Christ is the gospel and therefore it is Christ 
who reveals and defines the gospel. To which I trust all of you would say, Amen. But what does any of this have to do with the churches in Galatia? I mean, let's be real for a moment. This extended autobiographical sketch that I just read in your hearing, namely verses 11 through 24, the whole thing seems a little bit out of place. We might, not, we might be tempted to sort of chide the Apostle Paul. Man, why not cut to the good stuff? Just get to justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Why do I have to know about all of your journeys and your travels and times and dates and places? No one likes history except history professors, and we all know they're a little off. Why not get to the good stuff? Why this apparent diversion in chapter 1 on our way to chapters 2 and 3? Well, brothers and sisters, it all has to do with the opposition that the Apostle Paul was facing in Galatia. We don't know all of the details, but given the pieces that we do have, this is sort of how the puzzle fits together. There are this, this group of false teachers, and sometimes they are referred to as Judaizers. And they hailed from Jerusalem, from the mother church, if you will. And because they were from Jerusalem, remember, the, the, the birthplace of Christianity, you've got to understand that these guys carried a lot of clout. And so they arrive in Galatia, and these Judaizers, these so-called Christians from Jerusalem, very quickly they begin to sow seeds of discord, and they, and they seek to discredit Paul and his gospel of grace their argument seems to have gone something like this. They would say, well, Paul received the gospel from the Jerusalem church, from us. But then Paul, he sort of deviated a little bit. He, he twisted it. And then they would add insult to injury. If that wasn't bad enough, they'd say, you know what? Paul, by the way, he's not even a true apostle. You've heard of Peter, you've heard of James, you've heard of John. Yeah, those guys are with us. They're back in Jerusalem. They're the bona fide apostles. But Paul? Well, at best, he is a second-rate apostle with a second-hand gospel. At worst, he is a deceiver and distorter of the gospel. It's all those sort of accusations that are just below the surface of the text. They're in the white spaces, we might say today. And so before Paul can get to Galatians 2 and 3 and, and the gospel and sola fide, he has to address the elephant in the room. In other words, if Paul's gospel of sola fide is just made up by him out of thin air, then who really cares about it anyway? At the end of the day, it's just his opinion. It's just his truth, right? It's not the actual truth. It's just one more entry in a whole marketplace of ideas. So all of this causes the Apostle Paul to go on the offensive. And he does so by listing his resume. He does so by uh, beginning in verse 13. Here's his resume. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. 
and I was, verse 14, advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. See what Paul is doing here? He's sort of listing his accolades. He's letting everybody know in Galatia, I was at the top of my class. I graduated summa cum laude. But then, upon graduation, Paul would say, I actually did something. I was so extremely zealous that I persecuted the church of God violently and I tried to destroy it. And we get a glimpse of this violent zeal in Acts 8, don't we? There we are told in Acts chapter 8, verse 3, that Paul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. And he proceeded then, we are told, he, he would drag men and women off and he would throw them into prison. Paul's like, you, you guys want to compare trophies? We can do that. Sure, you Judaizers, you might talk a big game. You might say you're zealous for truth, but, but man, you got to look at me. I got blood on my hands. I didn't just talk. I terrorized. And I'm using that word terrorize intentionally. I'm using it intentionally because I think we can discern from the pages of the New Testament that Paul was something of a religious terrorist before his conversion to Christ. To put it bluntly, and in today's categories, Paul was a member of ISIS. He would have put pipe bombs in trunks of cars. He would have planted IEDs along roadways. He, he even would have conspired with those in his tribe about flying planes into buildings. The, the point is this. Paul never settled for the JV. He was always varsity level. He always played for keeps. And that's his resume. That's his resume as himself a, a Judaizer. And I think we should acknowledge it's a pretty impressive resume. But something changed. Something happened. Something that penetrated to the very core of his being and altered the course of his life forever. And that was this. The Christ he hated intercepted him. And you can see the, the drastic change introduced in verse 15. But, so there, there's the conjunction, right? We're going this way. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. And church, I would just say, maybe I just ask, press. Do you hear this? Do, do you feel it in your own soul? Does verse 15 sound familiar at all to you? We are told that God, by His grace and through His gospel, made Paul a new person. Made him a new creation. So that on Monday, he was an enemy, and then on Tuesday, he was an ally. Can you resonate at all with verse 15? Or is it altogether foreign to you? Have you personally come to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? Can you say verse 15 without having your fingers crossed behind your back? 
Have you been called to Christ? Have you turned from your sin? Have you embraced Jesus Christ? My friends, are you resting in Him even now? So many people are prone to treat Jesus or, or the Gospel sort of like Tylenol. right? It's just a pill that you take when things get really bad and you need to feel better. But are you trusting in Christ even now? If not, know this, you can have Christ today. Christ makes wonderful promises. And one of them is this, whoever comes to me, I will never, no, never cast out. We are told that Christ came not to call the righteous, but sinners. In fact, the Scriptures go so far as to say that that the whole mission of the Lord Jesus Christ revolves around saving not righteous people, not good people, but sinners. 1 Timothy 1.15 announces, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Right? Christ came not to destroy, but to deliver. This is why Christ was born. This is why He did what He did. Christ came came to redeem rebels. And I, would, and I would just ask you to consider this. If Christ can extend grace to Paul, grace that would forgive him and save him, and remember, Paul is an ISIS terrorist. If Christ can do that for Paul, do you think Christ has enough grace for you? Of course He does. And if you are here this morning and you are not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you need to know this. Your sin does not disqualify you. It's actually the only thing that does qualify you. We we could say that Christ is the bounty hunter of sinners. So don't stiff arm Him. The Bible tells us that today is the day of salvation. And so you are implored to come to Christ and have life. To come to Christ and have your sins forgiven. To come to Christ and be made a new man, a new woman. That is what Jesus offers you. Now back to Paul and his autobiography. Notice how it is radically shifted. He was once a terrorist, now an evangelist. God was, verse 16, pleased to reveal His Son to me. Why? In order that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. Notice, Paul was not just saved, as we would say today. Paul was sent. He was commissioned to proclaim the life-giving message of Jesus Christ to people who had never heard of Him. But in all of this, don't miss the forest for the trees. Paul is making a point. Remember the accusations that were leveled against him. The gospel that Paul preaches was invented by him. That's the accusation. Enter verse 16. Paul says, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, verse 18, after Three years. That's a long time. I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas. Remember, that's another name for Peter. I went up to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. 
But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And in what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. So, so we've talked about sort of Paul's resume. This is Paul's alibi, right? So there's, there's all these acrimonious accusations that are seeking to discredit Paul and his gospel of grace. And the accusation was essentially that Paul got the gospel from us Judaizers in Jerusalem, but then he twisted it and made it something else. And say, Paul treats the gospel uh, like putty. He just sort of makes it into whatever he wants. To which Paul would respond, not a chance, and I got the receipts. I got my gospel, Paul says, directly from Christ. And he would even go on to say, I didn't even step foot in Jerusalem after my conversion for three whole years. And when I finally did, I ended up spending a couple of weeks with Peter, and I spent a little bit of time with James, and guess what? We're all on the same page, right? Paul's gospel is Peter's gospel, and Peter's gospel is James' gospel, and James' gospel is Paul's gospel. Why? Because it's all Christ's gospel. So here's the rub. Here's sort of the linchpin in all of this. This is what can't be missed. The gospel, as you've heard me say time and time again, is about God doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. And the reason that that is important is because it is immediately at this point that the false gospel of the Judaizers breaks down. I say that because their pseudo-gospel was about what God starts for us in Christ, but also what we must do in return. It's worth pointing out that, that the Judaizers' gospel, like Rome's gospel, like the Mormons' gospel, like the Jehovah's Witnesses' gospel, it's all about Christ plus man. It's all about grace plus works. It's all about faith plus deeds. But the true gospel, the gospel that actually saves and sanctifies, the gospel that actually gives to those who believe it joy and assurance and hope and confidence, it rests not on you or me, but on the utter sufficiency of Jesus Christ crucified for sinners. Full stop. You have to know, and you know this in your soul if you reflect upon it for like four seconds, the gospel is not actually good news at the end of the day if it depends upon you. That's not good news at all. And that's because if you are involved, whether at the beginning, the middle, or the end, you are going to muck this whole thing up. And you're going to muck it up because you've got major chinks in your armor. But... If the gospel is all about God reconciling sinners to himself through Christ, who he is and what he has done. Well, that, brothers and sisters, is bulletproof. So that in a lot of ways, it is the difference between your eternal destiny being built upon sand or stone. It's either that Christ is enough or that Christ needs you to do your part. One of those is good news. 
one of those is haunting. What I want to do then for the next couple of minutes is highlight in our passage five traits of the true gospel. Five glories of the gospel. Five realities that should cause all of our weak and weary hearts to sing. To begin, let's focus our attention once more on the origin of the gospel. Let it forever be settled in your mind, Christian. The gospel is not, verse 11, man's gospel. Meaning, you and I didn't invent it. The gospel is not the result of a vote or a council or a synod or anything like that. The gospel is a message, an announcement, a declaration, and it is one that comes directly from God, and it is about God. And therefore, please don't miss this. Because it is God's gospel and not our gospel, we must be ever careful not to tamper with it. Remember, that's what the Judaizers were doing. They were making the gospel not about Christ and what He has done, but they were making the gospel about them and what they had done. And so they were making the gospel about their circumcision. They were making it about their obedience to the law of Moses. Today, many evangelicals make the gospel about their baptism. They make it about their diligent quiet time. The gospel is made uh, to reflect, I guess, their Christian growth or their adherence to some moral system. But church, the gospel, like Christ, comes from heaven. And you and I dare not distort it. Let me mention a second trait of the true gospel. And that is its manner. Its manner. In other words, how does the gospel happen or, or take place or occur? We get a glimpse of the answer at the end of verse 15. It was God who called me. So Christian, please hear this. The gospel has its origin in God before the foundation of the world. The gospel was not plan B. So, so the gospel predates Genesis 1. But then, at the same time, the gospel also occurs in space and time and history some 2,000 years ago when the Son of God took to Himself human nature, was born, lived, died, buried, and raised from the dead. So, so we can say the gospel predates creation before the foundation of the world. And then the gospel occurs in time and space in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. But still, the gospel must come to us, you and I, some 2,000 years removed from the Lord Jesus Christ. And the way that the gospel comes to us is in and through God calling us. To use the language of verse 15. In Reformed theology, we refer to this as effectual calling or irresistible grace. That is to say, the gospel is preached to you by mere men. And so it could be in a sermon, it could be a podcast, it could be a book, Lord willing it is your mom or your dad, it could come to you in a tract that someone leaves on your door. 
But the point is that God works in and through that gospel to call you to himself. And when God calls a sinner to himself, what God does is take out that heart of stone and he gives to that individual a new heart, a new heart of flesh. And the difference between stone and flesh is one of liveliness. It's one of feeling. Right? A stone is dead and hard and unmovable and unresponsive. But this new heart of flesh is now alive to God. Alive to Him so that this new heart trusts God and loves God and desires all by it imperfectly to actually obey God. That's the, that's the manner of the Gospel. God calls His elect to Himself through the proclamation of Jesus Christ. Which brings us to the third trait of the Gospel, and that is the means. Here's the question, and it is the most important question, the ones the Judaizers stumbled over. You ready for it? Why would God call Paul? Why would God call me? Why would God call you? And there's only one way to account for any of this. There's only one answer, and it's only one word. You know what that one word is? It's the word grace. It's the word grace. Grace is the soil that the flower of the gospel springs up from. And this is brought out in two ways, both in verse 15. We read, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by His grace. So catch this. Paul was, the text says, set apart before he was born. In other words, before he had done anything good or bad. Don't make the mistake of thinking that God sort of looks down through the corridors of time to see how Paul would turn out. And, and, and if Paul would turn out to be a, a good guy, then, then God would therefore choose him. And if Paul turns out to be a bad guy, then God's like, I don't know if I want that guy on my team. No. In fact, turns out Paul was a stinking wretch, right? He was seeking to destroy the church. But God chose to save him anyway. That is grace. It was before he was born, God had determined to set his grace upon him. And of course, this grace is literally spelled out there for us at the end of verse 15. God called me by His grace. And grace, beloved, is unmerited, or better said, demerited favor. It means you didn't earn it. it. means each and every syllable of it is all gift. And so church, this is how the gospel comes to you and I as well. The gospel comes to us not after we clean up our acts. Not after we get it all together. Not after somehow our good works begin to tip the scale in the right direction. No. The gospel comes to us by grace. Grace and grace alone. So that the gospel is, if we put it into a math equation, grace plus nothing equals everything. The Judaizers, though, their math was wonky. Their math was Christ plus me equals something. Now, this idea that grace alone, it is intimately connected to Christ alone. 
Which brings us to our fourth true gospel trait, and that is the purpose. The purpose. Why did God set Paul apart before he was born? Why did he call him to salvation? And verse 16 answers. We're told that God was pleased to do what? To reveal his son. Christian, do you know that God delights in his son? That the father loves his son? And do you know why the Father loves the Son? It is because the Lord Jesus Christ is altogether glorious. You want to know what else? Christ is what our souls long for. Christ is all that can truly satisfy you and I. And in the Gospel, God gives us Christ. And here's the key. Here's what should I pray, cause your heart to leap. The Father is not reluctant to do any of this. What does our passage say? God was pleased to reveal Christ. He was pleased to do it. Just as the Father delights in His Son, so the Father delights when we delight in His Son. Just as a newly married husband wants to show off his bride whom he loves and treasures, so God wants to show off Christ to us. God wants us to see and savor the Lord Jesus. This is why, again, according to verse 16, God was pleased to reveal Christ to us. And make no mistake about it, Christ really does have to be revealed to us. If you and I are to truly see and savor Him, then our eyes must be opened. But here's the deal. We cannot open our own eyes. Just as the blind man cannot will himself to see, and neither can we just somehow will the spiritual eyes of our hearts to see Christ. And if you were to ask why that is, the answer is actually quite simple. Our spiritual eyes are clouded with impenetrable cataracts. Our spiritual retinas are detached and our spiritual optic nerves are dead. Which means what we need is not a new pair of glasses. Imagine walking up to a blind man and giving him a new pair of glasses. Does that help? What we need is not new glasses. What we so desperately need are new eyes. And God gives us those eyes. Eyes to see and savor Jesus. And beloved, the Father gives, those, those, gives us those eyes by grace and grace alone. This all leads us then to the fifth and final trait of the true gospel, and that is the result. The true gospel church will always result in God being glorified, not man. And that is a bell that we have to constantly ring. Why, you ask? Because we are by nature insatiable glory hounds. We love to rob God of the rightful glory that is due Him and Him alone. Think about it. 
If redemption is really all of grace, if salvation is really all about Christ and who He is and what He has done, then verse 24 will be our epithet. And they glorified God because of me. So here's the question. Here's the question when it comes to the the plethora of Gospels that we are confronted with. What gospel leads to the glory and exaltation of God alone? That's the question that you have to ask. In this system, or in this church, or in this theology, or in this movement, who or what is actually being exalted? Is it man or God? Is it me or Christ? What is truly being made much of? Who or what is at the center? Think again for a moment, if you will, of the false gospel the Judaizers were peddling. Now sure, it would result in God getting some of the glory. And God has to get at least some of the glory because after all, God is the one who got the whole thing started, right? And, and it's true in their idea, in their view, in their, uh, in their gospel, Christ lived and died. He did all of that. That's, that's great. God gets some of the glory. And no doubt, Christ made everyone savable. That's true. But at the end of the day, it would be up to the person to check all the right boxes. Which means that in the Judaizer's so-called gospel, Christ doesn't actually save anyone. All Christ does is offer something of a potential salvation which puts you in the driver's seat. So that for the Judaizers, it came down to not Christ crucified, but have you been circumcised? Have you abstained from eating certain meats? Have you you been faithful to keep this list of, of old covenant ceremonies? And beloved, before you and I begin to shake our heads, please recognize this same nonsense happens today, even in our own churches, even in our own hearts. Granted, we we substitute stuff. I don't know anybody today that's out advocating that you need to be circumcised according to the law of of Moses. But we are all we are always putting front and center our works, our deeds, our activities. For many evangelicals, the gospel gets reduced to something like this. Well, have you said the sinner's prayer? Can you tell me the the day and time when you were converted? Have you done your best? Have you tried really hard? Have you always given into your all? Have Have you lived a radical life? Do you homeschool your children? Only listen to K love, avoid rated R movies, and do your quiet times each and every morning without fail. Do you have enough joy? Is your faith always growing? Have you repented enough? What social injustices in our world have you alleviated? What's your carbon footprint? Are you 
truly reformed. Now don't get me wrong, some of that stuff is good and it probably should be done. But this is the key. Please hear this. None of it. None of it is the gospel. Which means you cannot even for a millisecond rely rather on any of it. And that is because Christ and Christ alone forgives. Christ and Christ alone died to take away the wrath of God that was owed you because of your sin. Christ and Christ alone is your righteousness. Christ and Christ alone got up from the dead. Christ and Christ alone saves sinners. And the only way, the only way that we ever lay hold of Christ is by faith and by faith alone. Not by our baptism. Not by our Bible reading. Not by our church attendance. Neither do we lay hold of Christ or or stand right in God's sight because we feel saved. It doesn't come down to how much Bible knowledge we've acquired or how holy you might be today versus how holy you were last week. No. Redemption is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And you have to understand, the Judaizers were all about grace. They were all about faith. They were all about Christ. They just had an allergy to that little word alone. But that little word alone is the difference between the true gospel and the false gospel. Between heaven and hell. What Galatians will teach us then is this. God and God alone is glorified when sinners come to Him through Christ with our resumes tore up and with our eyes fixed upon Christ crucified for us. Or, If we can simplify the whole thing, Christ is enough. And Paul got this in his bones. He knew that he was a sinner. But more importantly, he knew that Christ saves sinners. And church, that is the true gospel. And so I would plead with you that you would settle for nothing less and settle for nothing more. Christ is enough for sinners like us. Our Father, we call out to You this day. We call out to You recognizing that we are a people who are prone to trust in anything and everything other than the Lord Jesus. We love to present our resumes. We love to think that because we have done this or not done that, that that somehow puts us in a better position before You. But we pray that Your Spirit would see fit to shake us to the core of our being, to wean us off all of these poisonous things that we are clinging to, and instead to cause our hearts to rest and delight solely in Jesus. May He be our plea. May He be our boast. May He be our life. We pray that would be true for our hearts, for our families, for this church. And if you would see fit, O God, may it be true of our community. We pray these things for we are in need of these things. And so we come to you, Father, in the name of your Son, asking that you would be gracious to us. And God's people said, Amen.